Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is the weekly for Friday, June 28th. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Iran, turmoil in the Middle East, cyber warfare, and the very real challenges in U.S. foreign policy. We cover it all with David Sanger. He is a senior writer and national security correspondent for The New York Times, also the author of the book The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage, and Fear in the Cyber Age. But we begin with the war of words between Washington and Tehran, with President Trump on the brink of launching a missile strike, only to pull back at the last minute, and a 2015 Iran deal that has essentially been ripped up, What's next for the U.S. and our allies, as well as Iran? And how did we reach this point? Our conversation is just ahead. We begin, though, with then-Secretary of State John Kerry in 2015, announcing the principles of that Iran deal. Without this agreement, Iran could double the number of its operating centrifuges almost overnight and continue expanding with ever more efficient designs. With this agreement... Iran's centrifuges will be reduced by two-thirds for 10 years. Then-Secretary of State John Kerry in 2015. David Sanger, thanks very much for stopping by the C-SPAN Radio studios. Great to be back with you, Steve. In 2019, where are we? Well, in 2019, the agreement that John Kerry uh, reached, and that clip you heard was from 2015, um, has largely worked. And it is just on the edge of falling off the cliff. Uh, President Trump, as you know, pulled out of the agreement a year ago. But the Iranians remarkably stayed with inside its rules because they were told by the Europeans that if you keep adhering to this agreement, even if the United States has left it, we will make up for the sanctions that the U.S. is, is imposing. So in other words, the Iranians had succeeded in splitting away some of our closest allies, Britain, Germany, France, and got them to agree to basically make up for what they were losing. And the Europeans couldn't find a way to do it. While they were happy to go try, their companies basically had to choose between the tiny Iranian market and operating in the United States. And that was an easy decision for them. So they wouldn't trade with Iran. Iran's oil revenues have been uh, gradually shut down and shut down and shut down to the point that they are barely able to export oil at this point. And last month, the Iranian president, Hassan Rouhani, said, that's it. We're going to start pulling out of the agreement bit by bit unless the Europeans can figure out a way to solve this problem. 
and they can't have not been able to figure that out. Pulling out of an agreement that President Trump has called the worst deal ever, and yet you have the State Department saying to Iran, you better abide by this agreement, even though we don't like it, even though we pulled out. It's the most remarkable diplomatic argument I have ever seen. Basically, they're saying, we're out of it, and we're out of the restrictions the United States was on, because the U.S., of course, lifted its sanctions on Iran in return for Iran complying with the agreement. Once President Trump was out, he reimposed those sanctions. So the Iranians are saying, hey, we didn't violate the agreement. You violated the agreement. And there are a lot of international lawyers who are in agreement with them. Um, so the situation that we're in right now is the U.S. is essentially demanding that Iran continue to comply with an agreement that to the U.S. is already dead. Now, think of this in reverse. The uh, Russians have been violating the international, uh, I'm sorry, the Intermediate uh, Nuclear Forces Agreement. And so the U.S. said, well, that's it. If you're violating it first, we're not going to stay in, and they're getting out, and that'll be complete this summer. So in the Russian case, we've done the reverse. We've said if somebody else violates first, we're not going to be bound. But in the Iran case, we're saying we're going to leave it, and you're still bound. When I see the word careening, I, I envision in my mind a car out of control, about to crash. And I mention that because we talked about this on Washington Today a couple of weeks ago, but the use of your, this word that you use in the New York Times piece, that the U.S. is careening toward a confrontation with Iran. President Trump careening toward a confrontation. That's right. And the reason I chose that word, and I chose it with some care, is that I can't find a strategy that takes us from where we are to where we want to be. Instead, we see a lot of erratic moves back and forth because this is a president who famously doesn't follow a lot of process in the national security arena. In most administrations that have been, that I've covered in, in the past 25 years, Democrats and Republicans, it's pretty much standard. You set on a strategy first. You run it through deputies' meetings at the National Security Council. You go up to the full council, which is basically the national security side of the cabinet. You tee up certain decisions for the president. This is a president who famously makes declarations by tweet, including uh, recently that you know if Iran uh, continues to threaten us, we will obliterate them in or at least obliterate parts of them. And on that note, have you ever seen a president use those words so publicly? Not since the United States dropped an atom bomb on Japan. So, and we, of course, he did this as well in the case of North Korea, where he declared that if North Korea continued its uh, tests uh, of both missiles and nuclear weapons, its underground tests, that it would see fire and fury like the world has never seen. Now, to the president, this is escalation to force a country into negotiation. And in North Korea, that's what happened. The, the negotiation may be stalemated, but he did turn on a dime. Iran is a different political creature than North Korea. It's not run by one person. It's highly factionalized. It's not clear that the people who negotiate agreements, the foreign minister, Javad Zarif, President Rouhani, are by any means the most influential power in the country. There's the Supreme Leader, the clerics, there's the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. So 
it's not at all clear that just by raising the pressure, the president's going to get Iran to fold, which is their theory. Sometimes sanctions work. But sometimes, as FDR discovered when he cut off Japan's ability to import oil in 1941, they result in a country lashing out because they fear that if they wait too long, they'll be in a much weaker position. John F. Kennedy thought that by imposing sanctions on Cuba, Castro would basically fold. Well, Castro never folded. And in the end, the Obama administration tried something different to begin to open up relations with, uh, with Cuba, and that's being gradually shut down again by the Trump administration. But it's not necessarily the case that just because you impose sanctions, you're going to reach your goal. This is a good point to explain how we reached the situation between the U.S. and Iran. And, and let me go back to ask you about the Shah. Who was he, and how did he rise to power? So the Shah uh, came to power as a uh, you know rising monarch and good friend of the United States, and he decided at that time that Iran's best bet was to ally with the United States and a vital ally and a, a vital ally. And the United States, in fact, to assure that the Shah would uh, would make it into power, the CIA, among others, um, through people like Kermit Roosevelt, the direct descendant of Theodore Roosevelt, helped um, stage a coup and uh, rig elections and so forth. This is the 1950s. The Shah rose to power. And, of course, over time became uh, something of a tyrant, but to the United States, a friendly, if not benevolent, dictator. And late in the Shah's time, as he was looking for some diversification of, uh, elect of energy sources, but maybe thinking of a nuclear weapon of his own to go deal with Israel and uh, the Arab states, um, he applied for and got permission to build a research reactor, a nuclear research reactor in Tehran. And that was signed off by the Ford administration in the very last years of the Shah's rule before he was overthrown in the 1979 uh, revolution. And guess whose signature is on the document internally that approved sending the research reactor? The um, chief of staff to um, President Ford, Dick Cheney. So the U.S. is responsible in part for the roots of Iran's nuclear program. Responsible for? We built their reactor for them. We sold it to them. So uh, pretty remarkable. That was the beginning of the nuclear program. Then the Iranian Revolution comes in, and um, uh, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini is not terribly interested in nuclear anything. And in fact, it looks like the program was largely in abeyance and starved for a number of years until after he died and uh, suddenly the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps began to get pretty interested in this. And based on documents that we have seen, some through the IAEA, but many that uh, the Israelis stole in a raid on uh, a nuclear archive uh, in Iran uh, just a little over a year ago, we now see the extensive documentation of the beginnings of a nuclear program that included what looks like a lot of documents about how you go about building and detonating a nuclear weapon. 
Let me remind our listeners that we are talking with David Sanger. He is senior writer and a national security correspondent for The New York Times, and we'll also talk about his new book in paperback, The Perfect Weapon. But let's go back to 1961, when the Shah, on one of a number of state visits, came to the U.S., hosted by President John F. Kennedy. Mr. President, it's a most pleasant opportunity for the Empress and myself to be able, thanks to your very kind invitation, to visit your great and beautiful country. Today, the name of America has a magic meaning for the most distant communities of the world. I bring with me the heartfelt greetings of my countrymen to your people, with the expression of their sincerest feelings of friendship. And I extend to you, Mr. President, my warm wishes for the happiness and prosperity of your great and noble nation. The Shah of Iran in the United States in 1961 at the White House with President John F. Kennedy. And explain where Iran is situated and why it was such a vital ally to have the Shah in power in that country. Well, we needed friends in the Middle East at a moment that the Middle East was seeming, you know, fractured and you know, nowhere near as dangerous a place uh, as it seems uh, today. But Iran seemed a very natural ally. And there are many who argue, and I think if you get truth serum into them, many in the Obama administration believe that the nuclear accord that they struck could be the beginnings of drawing Iran back into an American orbit. Of course, that all went off the wheels in 1979 after uh, the Shah was overthrown and uh, came to the United States for, uh, for, for cancer treatment. Um, and the uh, revolution went on, and then, of course, the hostage-taking of Americans and so forth. But it's never been very clear that Iran would naturally be an enemy of the United States. And to this day, all American presidents have differentiated between the Iranian government and the Iranian people, a very young population that is pretty America-friendly. And in fact, if you ask young Iranian people what they want to do, all they want to be able to do is get out and travel in Europe and come to the United States and study and do all of those things that you would expect young Iranians to want to go do, which their parents or grandparents got to do during the Shah's time. And clearly part of the strategy of the Trump administration is to hope that these sanctions create such anger against the leadership that there is at some point a change of government that would get rid of the ideological revolutionary government and bring back a friendly Iranian government. But the, will it do that? It's not at all clear because the government not only owns all the guns but owns the argument that it's the United States that is that is putting its heel on you and with these sanctions uh, conducting what they call economic warfare against the Iranian people. Another visit by the Shah in 1978. What's interesting is that Jimmy Carter had human rights as part of his foreign policy, and yet clearly the role of the Shah, the pivotal role that he played, trumped any human rights that he might have had in his country. Let's listen. Iran, because of the great leadership of the Shah, is an island of stability in one of the more troubled areas of the world. This is a great tribute to you, Your Majesty, and to your leadership and to the respect 
and the admiration and love which your people give to you. As you hear that, David Sanger, your reaction? So the key phrase is island of stability, because at the time that was going on, we had many Mideast wars underway. Uh, you had the Israelis um, battling the Arab states, battling the Palestinians and so forth. And the concept was that apart from Israel, which was under siege, have at least one good, solid American armed ally. And in fact, up until the last days of the Shah, the U.S. was paying, uh, I'm sorry, the U.S. was selling arms to the Iranians in order to keep that island of stability and keep an ally in in the region. And, you know, you frequently hear President Trump uh, talk about how the Obama administration gave back uh, uh, millions or billions of dollars back to the Iranians. Well, and, you know, as if we, the U.S. was giving them a gift. In fact, some of that money was in was money the Iranians had paid to the United States the, for arms that were never delivered because the revolution happened and nobody was going to go help arm the Ayatollahs, right? And so the U.S. had accepted their money and not delivered the goods. So to the Iranian view of the world, that money was theirs and they just hadn't been paid in 40 years. One other historical note before we sat down, I went back to rereading Jimmy Carter's memoirs, and there was a real debate within the administration in terms of whether to allow the Shah to come to the U.S. as he was battling cancer. And, of course, that ultimately led to the the taking of the hostages in November of 1979. That's right. It was a huge argument within the administration. I mean, some argued, look, this is a longtime ally, supported the United States. He's dying. He needs medical care. He's been thrown out of his own country. The humanitarian thing to do is to take him in exile. And the argument against it was it will further inflame the new Iranian leadership with whom the U.S. had tried to start up a conversation. And, try, and, and in fact, it did, as you say, lead to the hostage taking. And what was that all about? Why take those 50-plus Americans who were in Tehran? You know, there are many arguments about what was going on within the leadership and how much control the central leadership had over that decision-making and how much of it was done by basically students, 20-somethings, many of whom have later become part of the Iranian leadership. But it became part of the death to America we are in opposition to the United States, which had supported the Shah as he repressed the Iranian people. And let's remember, the Shah was no Boy Scout. I mean, he got rid of a whole lot of his political opponents and ran some pretty brutal prisons. And we overlooked a lot of it. And Jimmy Carter overlooked a fair bit of it because we needed that island of stability. So let's fast forward to where we are today the president saying he wants to use maximum pressure on Iran. Will it work? That's the great mystery. The mystery here is, will simply cutting off their oil um, uh, revenues and sanctioning the supreme leader, as the president did the other day, and sanctioning their diplomats and so forth, create such overwhelming pressure that one of two things happens, that the Iranians fold and say, we'll go negotiate a new agreement much better for you than the one that President Trump abandoned, or that it will lead to an uprising in the streets 
in Iran because the economic suffering is so great. Including a lot of name-calling in which they call the president mentally retarded. That's right. That's right. So name-calling's cheap. People want to go do that. I mean, yeah, it raises the tension some, but doesn't fundamentally change the strategic situation. The question you asked is the the $100,000 question here, which is, can this pressure either force the Iranians into a negotiation or force a revolution? And it's not all at all clear that either thing will happen. Maybe it will, uh, in which case President Trump will say, I designed the strategy that ultimately broke the Iranian regime. Uh, but it's also possible that it leads people to make rash decisions in extremely tense situations, which may be exactly what happened when they shot down the U.S. drone, fortunately an unmanned drone, because I think we'd be in a very different place had they killed an American pilot or an American crew in the course of downing an airplane. As you recall, Barack Obama as president said, if Syria crossed the red line, we were going to, to go after Syria. With regard to Iran and the president threatening to strike Iran and then pulling back, was that a sign of strength or weakness? You know, it's a good question because this decision was a sign of weakness in that the process was pretty terrible. I mean, he said that he learned in the last few minutes that it might kill 150 people. Would you, you ask that right away? You That's the first question. The first question is, how many people will this kill and therefore... Can we argue that this is a proportionate military response? And if you haven't been considering that question from the very beginning, then you're not asking the right questions as you begin this process. In the end, I think, I think you can easily argue the president ended up in the right place, which is to say you don't conduct an attack that's going to kill people in response to losing $130 million worth of machinery. Well, the president was asked about that in the Oval Office this past week. Here's the question and his response. Do you have an exit strategy for Iran if war does break out? Uh, you're not going to need an exit strategy. <laughs> I don't need exit strategies. A lot of tough words by the president. You know, if you don't go into an event, a military event, without thinking what's your plan B and your plan C and what's your exit strategy if it doesn't work, then you're in trouble. Ask Jimmy Carter, who tried to go rescue the hostages. And of course, there was a great disaster in the desert that ended up killing the rescuers, Americans who tried this, and led to the resignation of his Secretary of State, Cy Vance, who said, uh, who had opposed the rescue effort to begin with. So yes, you always need a plan B and a plan C, or you're not doing an effective military piece of planning. The president's also gone out of his way to portray the Obama administration uh, as simply uh, folding to the Iranians. And I actually don't think that's the case. What brought the Iranians to the table to reach the 2015 agreement was a combination of sanctions, not as severe sanctions as President Trump has done, but sanctions nonetheless, and sabotage. And it was that mix, the sanctions and the sabotage of the nuclear program, sabotage by cyber means, that in the end, I think, made the difference. The question is, could you pull that off a second time? Here was Secretary of State at the time, John Kerry, announcing this agreement. 
The reality is that if we trusted Iran or thought that it was about to become more moderate, this agreement would be less necessary than it is. But we don't. We would like nothing more than to see Iran act differently. But not for a minute are we counting on it. Iran's support for terrorist groups and its contributions to sectarian violence are not recent policies. They reflect the perceptions of, the, of its leaders about Iran's long-term national interests, and there are no grounds for expecting those calculations to change in the near future. That is why we believe so strongly that every problem in the Middle East, every threat to Israel and to our friends in the region would be more dangerous if Iran were permitted to have a nuclear weapon. That is the inescapable bottom line. David Sanger, how did the Obama administration reach that point? What sparked the Iran nuclear deal? Well, let's first look for a moment at what Secretary Kerry said there. He said, we don't trust the Iranians. They need to be constrained. And therefore, we need to keep them from getting a nuclear weapon. Because his core argument was, if Iran is supporting terrorism, if Iran is continuing to threaten its neighbors, it would be much better to deal with a non-nuclear Iran than a nuclear one. The critique of the agreement that we've heard from President Trump is a legitimate critique, that it didn't last long enough, that in 10 years Iran would begin to be able to develop new equipment, that in 15 years or 20 years it would, I'm sorry, 15 years from the agreement, it would begin to produce uranium again, nuclear fuel, at basically unlimited amounts. And so what was the Obama administration doing? It was kicking the can down the road for 15 years in hopes of different Iranian leadership. And President Trump's essential argument is, we can't have an agreement that will expire. So he basically precipitated an earlier crisis. What led to this agreement? It was the recognition that over time, you were better to get the nuclear fuel out of the country, and the Iranians shipped 97% of their fuel out when they signed it, then, uh, and have a 15-year hiatus, then you were to have an escalating crisis. You have written about the Olympic Games. What were they? So Olympic Games uh, was the code name for the most sophisticated state-on-state uh, -state cyber attack that we know of or have ever seen. It was the American and Israeli attack a decade ago on the Natanz nuclear enrichment site. It began in the Bush administration, and it began because President Bush, having invaded Iraq on the false premise that they were on their way to getting nuclear weapons, knew that to stop Iran, he could not start another war. And a group of uh, intelligence officials and generals came to him and said, sir, we have another way. If we can get into the control systems that run these centrifuges, which spin at supersonic speeds and make nuclear fuel, make uranium fuel, we can make those machines blow up. And in fact, they started a huge covert program to do just that. They built a model of the, uh, the Natanz plant in a hillside in Tennessee behind a US weapons lab. They attacked it with this cyber weapon. It worked and they took it to Iran. It was a huge technical achievement because the Iranians were keeping all of their nuclear program offline, so you couldn't just get into it through the internet. You actually had to be able to get people to carry 
the code on USBs or other ways to get it into um, the plant. And it ended up destroying about 1,000 of the 5,000 centrifuges at the time. And the Iranians, for a few years, had no idea what was going on until one day, or they knew what was going on. They didn't know why it was going on. Till one day the code got out around the world. You heard about it as Stuxnet. That was a name the, the computer industry sort of gave it. And it was this remarkably complex piece of malware. And in retrospect, it was really the opening shot of state-on-state -state cyber wars. It's why I wrote the book. I was just going to ask you, was that the genesis? And the book is titled The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage, and Fear in the Cyber Age, now available in paperback. What surprised you the most in researching this? Because it well, really is the new battlefield. It is. And what uh, the story of Olympic Games I told in a previous book that came out in uh, uh, that came out uh, in 2012. And that book uh, described the attack. But at the time that that happened, you could find only a handful of countries that were making use of sophisticated cyber weapons. As I was working on the perfect weapon, which came out in hardcover last year and, as you say, is, is now in a paperback and sort of expanded edition, um, I would say we found about 35 nations that are now capable of using sophisticated cyber weapons. But more importantly, we found that cyber had become the primary way, the primary way that countries conducted short-of-war operations against each other, that this was the way that Russia went after not only the election systems, but the State Department, the White House, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It's the way the Chinese not only stole um, uh, intellectual property, but managed to undercut the security clearance process in the United States by taking 22 million security clearance files that were poorly protected by the Office of Personnel Management. It was the way the Iranians came in to mess up American banks in 2012 and 2013 in response to Olympic Games and the way they brought down an entire Las Vegas casino, the Sands Casino, because its owner, uh, a big Republican uh, and conservative donor, had suggested that uh, the U.S. just drop an atomic bomb in the Iranian desert to sort of show them that we're willing to go use nuclear weapons. So they said, desert? Okay, this guy's got a casino, and they wiped it, wiped out its hard drives at one point. It's the way the North Koreans went after Sony. It's the way the North Koreans managed to steal money from central banks. And so this has become the day-to-day go-to weapon, and as I've described in the time since, the weapon used by the United States against the Russian electric grid, the weapon used by the United States against ISIS, the weapon used by the United States against the North Korean missile program. Explain the Russia electric grid, because you wrote about that earlier this month in the New York Times. Uh, I did, and uh, with my colleague Nicole Perlroff. So for years, the U.S. has worried about the Russians being inside the U.S. electric grid, where the Department of Homeland Security has turned out warning after warning that there's Russian malware in the grid. And we don't know whether the Russians are just putting it there to spook us out or whether they are putting it there because one day in a time of conflict, they want to be able to turn off the lights from Boston to Washington or Seattle to L.A. Um, but certainly the fact that their malware is in the system is a significant deterrent to Americans as they're dealing with Russia. The um, 
U.S. had to decide how to go deal with this. And for years during the Obama administration, we had surveillance software inside the Russian grid, but not malicious software. And over the past year, that has changed. Some of it designed to be seen by the Russians to say, you want to go mess with our grid? You might think about what's going to happen to your own. So it's the effort to begin to build deterrence, what's been missing in the cyber realm, uh, by going in in a big way. They're doing that in part because U.S. Cyber Command, which is now an equivalent command to, say, Central Command that does work in the Middle East or Northern Command that defends the U.S., U.S. Cyber Command has two new big authorities. President Trump issued new authorities in August of last year that enables them to conduct a lot of cyber operations without getting presidential approval in advance. And Congress gave Cyber Command the ability to consider cyber a traditional military operation. You could go into foreign networks, sort of defend forward the way the special forces would go into a foreign country to defend forward against terrorist groups and consider that normal military activity. And that has really unleashed Cyber Command's powers. The problem is we haven't debated how we want to go use this power. This is an obvious question, but you have two children. You walk down any street anywhere in the country. You go to a college campus. You see how dependent we are on our phones and tablets and other devices. So why should the average American care? Why is this important to them? Because there's nothing in their lives these days that is not network connected that they really care about. You know, unless you're living without electricity and without a water pump in a log cabin somewhere in the American West, you are as network dependent as anyone. And this is the great vulnerability for the United States. The oddity of cyber conflict, I'm not saying cyber warfare because we haven't seen a big cyber war yet. We've just seen skirmishing. The oddity of cyber conflict is that all the advantage, Steve, goes to the least connected, least wired societies attacking the most wired societies. We're the most vulnerable because everything we have is connected up. And yet if we got attacked by the North Koreans, for example, using a cyber weapon, what are you going to do? Turn around and do a return cyber attack on North Korea, a country that barely can turn the lights on on its own, that is not connected? If you're wondering how connected you are, think of your own house. Ten years ago, you probably had two things connected to the Internet, your laptop and a desktop. Today you have your Alexa, your smart television, your uh, watch if you're using a, a watch that's Internet connected in some way. Obviously your cell phones, your security cameras, um, the car parked outside, even if it's not an autonomous car, even if it's not a particularly fancy car, has Internet connections to it most likely. Some people have Internet-connected refrigerators. I've never figured out what to do with one, <laughs> but they have one, okay? And they're not cheap. They're not cheap. Maybe if they told me to eat less, that would be useful. <laughs> um, so the connections never stop. And as the world of the Internet of Things comes together and as 5G comes together to connect all these Internet of Things devices, because 5G is mostly about connecting machines, talking to machines, not just speeding up your, your cell phone, we are going to be more vulnerable than we've ever been. The book is called The Perfect Weapon, now in paperback. And on that note, you're calling for a digital Geneva Convention. 
So I raise this as the least bad idea of all the bad ideas about how one creates treaties in this area. And the idea is not original to me. Actually, the person who invented that phrase is Brad Smith, the president of, of Microsoft. But think about what the, what the real Geneva Conventions did. The real Geneva Conventions were intended to protect civilians from becoming the innocent victims of war or conflict with which they had no control. And so it prohibits gassing your own civilians. Um, torturing your own civilians, committing what we would today call war crimes. Did it solve the problem? No. You, Bashar Assad wakes up every morning thinking about how he's going to go violate the real Geneva Conventions. But we're all thinking one day this guy is going to get dragged in front of some international court and is going to be put on trial for what he's done to his own people. Right? What would a digital Geneva Convention do? A digital Geneva Convention would say there are some things that should be off-limits to cyber activity. And if you and I were going out to lunch and trying to figure out what would be a list of things, I think we'd come up with a list that looked a little like this. Power grids, because you turn off the power, you hurt the most vulnerable people in society, people in hospitals or nursing homes or people who are shut into their houses. Emergency communications systems. Election systems. Anyone for making election systems off, off limits to cyber activity? You and I could go on. When did we hear about that? Yeah, right. So we could go on with the list. Now, imagine for a minute the United States was about to go out and negotiate this because a lot of countries have endorsed this idea in UN sessions, in a uh, session that marked the end of World War I as the French president tried to gather people to think about new threats. But the U.S. hasn't signed on. Why not? Because no one in the U.S. intelligence community wants to go give up capabilities that we may have to use in the future. In The Perfect Weapon, readers come across a classified U.S. program called Nitro Zeus that was developed to unplug all of Iran if we ended up going to war with Iran. It was foreshortened by the 2015 agreement, but you have to think Nitro Zeus is back in some form or another. Why would you want to unplug a country? Because if you could bring down its power grid, you may never need to drop a bomb on it. You might get the country to collapse or surrender without firing a shot. Election systems? Yeah, we don't like what the Russians did to us, but you could imagine that an American president would think it might be worth making sure a new Maduro did not get elected in Venezuela rather than run the risk of a conflict with them. Emergency communications? Well, the first thing that the United States does in wartime is try to unplug another country's communication so that the political command can't talk to the military and the military can't talk to each other. So it's not clear to me that the U.S. would be willing to sign on to a digital Geneva Convention. What's missing is any public discussion of that. We had such discussions in the nuclear age, you know, everything about how you made nuclear weapons, where you stored them, what authority to fire them, that was all classified. But we had a rip-roaring debate about how you want to use nuclear weapons. And I argue in this book, it's way past time to have the same rip-roaring debate about how the United States wants to use cyber weapons. The subtitle of the book, by the way, is War, Sabotage, and Fear in the Cyber Age. And did we say it's available in paperback now? 
I think we did. <laughs> and electronically and audio. <laughs> Let me conclude where we began with regard to Iran. Will this continue to be a war of words, often harsh words, between Tehran and Washington? Or do you think we will sit down at the negotiation table? There are three big options here, and you left out the worst of them. And the worst of them is that it, the war of words turns into an actual shooting war or an actual cyber war. Does that worry you? It does. And the reason it does is that our forces are operating at such close quarters in the Gulf, as you saw with the tankers a week ago, that the Iranians want feel as if they need to lash out and have sanctions that will affect us. What are the two ways that they can go do that? One is interrupt oil shipments in the Gulf. If they're not going to be able to ship out oil, they want to make sure no one else can. Send oil, send gas prices sky high, uh, rattle the markets, and so forth. And I think that's what you were seeing in these no doubt Iranian-backed uh, attacks on the tankers. Or you could see some commander saying, we believe that drone or that manned aircraft has gone into Iranian territory and shoot another one down, and you're off to the races. We narrowly avoided an escalatory situation last week when the president pulled back, I think wisely pulled back. Um, the next option is that the Iranians say, yes, we'll sit down and negotiate. But boy, it would require a lot of loss of face for the Iranian leadership to do that because they have basically said, we're not going to negotiate with a country that is conducting economic warfare with us, and we're not going to negotiate with a country that has already proven that it abandons its agreements. Why sign an agreement with an administration that walks away from the agreements and inherit? And this is why Rex Tillerson and H.R. McMaster and others were arguing, don't abandon the nuclear deal, but tell the Iranians that if they don't have a parallel deal on missiles, on support of terrorism, there are going to be other sanctions against them in other fields. And there are many in the administration who argued to President Trump that's what he needed to do. He got rid of the pe most of the people who made that argument. Jim Mattis, the defense secretary, was the last of them. Um, so maybe a negotiation will get going. It's hard for me to see how we get from here to there. Um, the big hope of the administration is that you're going to see some kind of collapse in Iran. And... Um, Every administration from Jimmy Carter forward has been hoping for that moment. They've all been disappointed so far. David Sanger, the book is called The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage, and Fear in the Cyber Age. Senior writer and national security correspondent for The New York Times, you have been a busy reporter the last couple of months. We thank you for stopping by. Great to be with you, Steve. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app or wherever you download your favorite podcast. We thank you for listening.